trying to get this going. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Good afternoon, San Francisco Music Tech. Yeah. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm so happy to see all of you in the room. Thank you for staying with us for the full day. We really have a treat in store for you. My name is Kiran Gandhi. I'm a drummer. I spent a year touring with MIA, and right now I'm working on my own project called Madam Gandhi. Um, I'm really thrilled to be here with some of the industry's heaviest hitters to answer some of my questions. I pitched this panel um, to the team at San Francisco Music Tech. They brought in the top people to answer my questions. I want to ask who in the audience is an artist or a creator. It's really important to me to understand that. Awesome. So we got about 50% of the room is creating in real time. As we know, the arts have always been a place of inspiration, seeing each other's work, learning from it, using it, sometimes always uh, crediting people, sometimes not always crediting people. That's what this conversation is going to be about. Um, we're going to look today at the use of metadata, the way it's evolved, the reasons why it matters, the potential revenue streams it unlocks, and what we can expect from the rest of the industry going forward. We want this to be incredibly interactive. We want you off your phones and listening because these gentlemen have so much to offer. And so for that, what I would love is to encourage questions throughout the discussion. If you do have a question, you can raise your hand and I'll make sure to get to you. Or you can also tweet at me. I'll have my phone and I can ask the question so it's a little bit more organic if you prefer that. It's at Madam Gandhi. All you need to do is spell Gandhi right. It's right there. <laughs> Fantastic. I'd like to go ahead and ask these gentlemen to introduce themselves. They're extremely uh, exceptional, so we'll have to ask for the haiku version. Please, take it away. Hi, I'm uh, Stephen White. I'm the CEO of Dubset Media Holdings. It's a platform for the identification, clearance, and legal distribution of any mixed and remixed content. Hi, I'm Ty Roberts. I'm the co-founder, chief strategy officer, and acting GM of music for Gracenote. Gracenote's the largest provider of uh, metadata and information for TVs, movies, and music. Oh, and sports. I'm Michael Simon. Is this happening? Maybe. I'm Michael Simon from HFA and Rumblefish, and we bring the rights holders to those who rely upon rights. Thank you. Ty, I'd love to start with you. Can you please teach us and tell the audience what is metadata? Why does it matter? This is going to be really exciting. Um, <laughs> Nothing like data to warm up. So, metadata. Yeah, the final frontier. <laughs> exactly. So, um, I guess we talk about metadata really is the descriptive information that describes the content. It's part of video, music, all kinds of different things. It's what's used to basically figure out what something actually is. Um, in the world of music where we're talking, there's a thing called the ISRC, which is a, essentially a recording code for the master recording. There's a thing called the ISWC, which is a, uh, essentially a code for the underlying uh, musical work or the song, I think of it. Um, and then there's a bunch of, I'll call it factual or somewhat factual information that essentially is the name of the song, the artist, you know, where it was created, where it's done, all kinds of stuff like that. And then the last part is uh, there's other metadata, subjective metadata, free tagging, all kinds of things that get put onto files. And from that soup of stuff, it's, it's what we use to figure out who to pay, if you can see it or listen to it, all that kind of stuff. Anyone else like to add? I think that's good. I mean, that, the only other piece I'd add is that, uh, especially Ty's company does quite a bit of work with descriptive metadata. He put that in the kind of other stuff, but things like <coughs> genre and era and style, those kind of uh, metadata elements. And we, we also forgot the kind of the underlying ownership information, the publishing, but maybe, maybe you could talk about that. Splits. Uh, you've, you may have heard of, you may have heard the word splits in the publishing industry, music publishing industry. Splits means who owns what percentage of a composition, whether we're talking about which, which two or more publishers own it, or if there are multiple writers, who the writers are, and what percentage entitlement they have to that composition. Awesome, thank you. Uh, can you walk us through a little bit about the process if an artist did want to upload their work um, to Spotify, to YouTube, et cetera, what are some of the best practices that you recommend now that I know we have 50% of the audience uh, is a creator? Well, I guess what I would say about that is definitely put in as much information as you can, like even more than maybe, you know, the default number of boxes you need to fill in because all that stuff will be used later in different contexts to try to get you essentially paid. And, you know, leaving things blank isn't a great way to get paid. <laughs> you know. But even backing up further to kind of the creation process, uh, what we see today is a lot of creators uh, kind of put off metadata as a we'll worry about it later thing. You're so busy focused on 
creating the music that is really what you're inspired to do, that the metadata piece becomes that unnecessary or, or un, you know, unwanted work uh, to package up whatever you know, creativity you've, you've put together. So doing that stuff early is very, very important, especially establishing like who are the two people or three people that wrote this song. That split uh, problem is a big one. Very often that information doesn't show up in systems like Spotify for anywhere from 30 to 90 days after they receive and start distributing your content. Uh, that means that you're not getting paid while they're waiting for that data to show up. So very important for you to capture that data early. Make sure you're getting that stuff figured out. Have the hard discussion about what percentage of a song you own versus your co-writer or your, your co-performers and get that stuff all captured early in the process. All this stuff seems pretty straightforward, man. I can't really understand why uh, we're even up here. It feels like all I got to do, answer my name, enter my genre, what's the big old problem? <laughs> Um, maybe, Michael, you can walk us through what some of the difficulties are today in the landscape and why we need to be focusing on this issue. Oh, yeah, I'm the problem? No. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know Calling about it. for the problem? No. <laughs> All right, here's the problem. The problem is it's actually if two people in this room get together and you write one song and you make one recording and you distribute it in one network, that is not a problem. But if you are engaged in a business that on the day that it commences operations has 30 million master recordings, uh, in those master recordings are 10 or 15 million unique compositions that reflect the work of, say, 10,000 songwriters, and then you replicate that across, say, 300 locations in the United States, and then another 2,000 around the world, and you start committing that data repeatedly to multiple databases. We all know that when data replicates and migrates, it collides and becomes inconsistent. And the next thing you know, the industry has panels like this where we spend the rest of our, <laughs> we spend the rest of our lives not working on the, uh, the pipeline that delivers creativity to a audience and then delivers the fruits of that creativity back to those who created it. And instead, we spend our lives trying to integrate our databases and build protocols <laughs> between us so that when I send data to Ty, and although Ty brilliantly captures it, something happens to the data and a hashtag appears in it and it no longer matches. <laughs> instead of we seeing that one line of data and saying there's one hashtag in there, we see 100 million lines of data and for the next year, we have to design algorithms to figure out that someone stuck a hashtag in there. That's and right. then the whole system goes deeply southward. Is that where we are right now? Uh, we have been there for a long time. A long time, <laughs> yeah, long we've been time. there for a long time. That is where we are now, that is where we have been for a long time. Ty, jump on in. Yeah, so, you know, basically what's going on there is every music platform has its own database of content that they've ingested from all different sources, even has some unique content they've got from certain individuals who came to their studios and recorded. And the problem is people somewhere in the process are typing stuff in and computers are automatically matching some stuff using a bunch of, and the matching technology isn't perfect. And, you know, it's, it's like when you put something into Google, you don't get like one result. You get like, you know, pages of them, right? So the reality is, is that the computer doesn't actually know everything about everything. And there is one other really large problem, which is unlike the movie business where you have to have a unique name, okay? To be a movie actor, you can't have the same name as anyone else. That's the, not in music. There's like 30 John Williamses. So, so even just figuring out from the name of the guy who the right guy is, is difficult because people have duplicate names and there's duplicate bands and all kinds of stuff. And then there's the band The The. And every John Williams has done the song. <laughs> Which is the Baby. only one you can find. Because <laughs> it's really just The The. <laughs> And honestly, careers are made from being able to be credited correctly. You know, if you, a lot of times, even in negotiations today, you'll see an artist ask the person they're doing a remix for or working with, hey, can you make sure that my name is featured in the name of the song? Because that is so valuable. Um, a friend of mine who works over at Shazam was telling me that one of her biggest frustrations is in the algorithm, they'll tag a song, and actually the song was the remix of the original version, but the original version is what keep coming up, keep comes up. Uh, keeps coming up. And so what we want to see is better tagging around both remixes, around deri derivative works. Um, let's move into a conversation a little bit more on the uplifting side about what are some of the solutions we've seen built around tagging culture today. So I think the first thing we should talk about there is audio fingerprinting. Um, that's a big part of our platform is utilizing audio fingerprinting to figure out what the underlying songs are. You just raised a very large problem with audio fingerprinting. Uh, the technology that we use is from Grace Note. We believe the best in the business. 
but still has challenges like the one you just mentioned where differentiating between two very similar pieces of work uh, is, is still very challenging for the technology. That said, there's a lot of evolution happening with audio fingerprinting, and Ty, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so right now, the, the, the kind of state of the art for audio fingerprinting technology, it can identify a recording you know, uniquely if it looks at the whole recording, um, except, except it's the 30 seconds of silence by John Cage. Um, but the reality is, is that we really want to be able to take apart these, these remixes or actually mashups. And to do that, you kind of have to peel each little piece of music off there individually. And so the new advances in fingerprinting will allow this. It's almost like identify, scale that piece, and then remove it from the mix, and then keep doing that over and over until you peel all the layers off. And that's what we're working on. It's going to take a couple more years to get that really out there to the market where it's reliable. But it will happen. And then once we have that, then we can at least know what the underlying things are and we can help unlock a lot of new uh, revenue streams because people can figure out what's in there and people can figure out how to get paid. So this is what we do today using the Grace Notes fingerprinting is we take DJ mixes or remix songs and we break them down into three second and six second segments and we audio fingerprint those and figure out across the entirety of a mix what are all the songs, compositions that are being used attach those to the underlying rights holders to so figure out which labels and publishers are representing those pieces of works working with folks like HFA. Uh, and that allows us to then clear that stuff through the labels and publishers through sets of rules-based systems that are all automated and then deliver those to market in a legal, compliant, and royalty-bearing way with the right metadata attached to them. It's a complicated set of steps that has to happen to get there, but uh, it is allowing us to really unlock monetization opportunities for mixed content that didn't happen before. The demand's been there for mixed content for a, a very long time. Yeah. Um, the IFPI estimates that 800 million consumers listen to mixed content every week across the internet, primarily through unlicensed sites. Um, you know, SoundCloud is, is, is a kind of poster child here, been trying to you know, get licenses in place to be able to support distribution of this content. Has a tremendous, uh, very large user base and, you know, a, a great platform for artists who want to distribute their content. That sadly, they, they haven't been able to cross Don't that Don't be so chasm. nice about it. Tell us the real <clears throat> stuff, man. Tell us what you really feel about SoundCloud. <laughs> I, I think SoundCloud's a fantastic platform. If they only would use something like Dubset, they'd be great. <laughs> okay, so paint the vision. Paint the vision. What's missing? If I'm an artist, I love SoundCloud. I get to put my stuff up immediately. I can feel really good about all the people who are following me. I love it. So what am I missing? Well, I mean, the, the problem today is outside of YouTube, there's, the no, there's no platform that has a content ID system system that allows for the resolution to the underlying rights holders and ultimately the payment to those rights holders. Right. So what we're, what we're seeing right now is services like SoundCloud and others try to replicate that YouTube model of build your own content ID platform. We understand why that's the case. It's great to control your own destiny and have your control of your whole platform. The reality is for the rights holders and the artists in this room, if that happens and there are 800, 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 different platforms that you have to use to manage your content across these various sites, that is going to be an absolute nightmare for the content industry. Mm -hmm. We believe strongly it's got to be centralized and there's got to be a very simple way in one place for content owners to manage their content and determine how it should be used out in the open marketplace and allow for the unlocking of the tremendous creativity that's out there to remix, recreate, repackage, and do what artists have always, always done, which is take pieces of content yep. and put them together. Okay, the technology's so there to do that. Stay with me on the SoundCloud example for a second. If I upload my stuff to SoundCloud, what's the grand dream? Would it be that I can now get paid, but there's no money well, going into SoundCloud? Well, the first what's thing the is they, they come under attack because they have stuff over there which they don't know what it is. It could be the Beatles and where it's you. Um, and so the reality is the first thing is they put a filtering system in, non-identification system. They just block or ban everything that like, oh, wait, wait, there's a half a second of the Beatles in there. It's coming down. And so that's not a good solution. Okay, that's basically taking down something that might have had great appeal or, or, or whatever. So if you sampled one little piece of David Guetta or something and it figures that out, it might just take it down. Okay, so really what you need is more what we're talking about is a system that can go through there and rights holders and people can work together to lead the stuff up 
That's what we really want is the stuff up because people are watching these things or listening to them in a mass way. I think we were talking about back there just, you know, video game montage. Little kids record themselves playing video games and then they put a soundtrack to it. 100 million views, boom, it's down the next day because I got David Wett in there for half a second. So we really want to throw away things that 100 million people are looking at. I wouldn't do that. I would try to put an ad next to it, collect some money, and help the underlying musicians make some money for their work or at least expose their music in some way. You, you should keep in mind that when you post your super groovy drum track up mm -hmm. to SoundCloud, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you probably clicked a box that said you control all the rights necessary to do that. And it's not a viable business to create, we, I don't think as a culture we want to create 500,000 new copyright infringers per year. We probably want to do what Ty and Steven are talking about. I don't want to be about. a copyright infringer, no and, way. And create, create a world of, of uh, a, a more compliant world. Yes. Yes. And that doesn't mean that people still can't say I don't want it up or whatever. We should give the people, the, we should give the tools and let people control their, what they want to do with it. But right now we have like only one tool which is a sledgehammer. Mm -hmm. So we should try to do something better than that. We, we, we've built other tools. Oh, they're, they're here. Okay. I mean, the, the, the rules-based systems that we have in place around Dubset's platform allow labels and publishers to set the rules around how their content can be used so they can determine if they want their content used in remixes, if they want their content used in long-form mix content, if they want it used more than X number of seconds of duration, if they want it distributed to certain territories. These are all the controls that the content industry needs to have to be comfortable allowing the unlocking of the use of their content to make sure that they can still <laughs> rein it in and determine if they want something used one way or not. Right. Okay, yeah. I have a question. We are receiving some questions from the audience, but I do want to ask one thing, which is that I always imagine a world, because I see a lot of my friends remixing each other's work, pulling stuff, samples from SoundCloud, from other uh, sounds on YouTube, making their own music. They're collaging, either using Ableton or Pro Tools or whatever. So I imagine a world that gets me really excited where if I had my stuff and people were sampling it, I have three choices. They could come to me when they're using my work. It, this is my dream. I, maybe I'm thinking about the wrong way, which is why I wanted to be on this panel with you. One, they can say, hey, Kieran, we're going to just feature you in the name of the song. We're going to say, like, featuring the voice of Kieran Gandhi or featuring the drumbeat of Kieran Gandhi. That would be great if you're Skrillex. That's super dope. I'm down. You can have it. That's awesome. Skrillex, um, because if you're out there. <laughs> Skrillex, <laughs> Skrillex, come and sample my voice and pitch shift it all you want. Um, that would be awesome because the value to me of just having my name next to his work is, is huge. That can make my, my entire career as an artist. Or maybe I'm hurting. I need to eat. So I'd rather just sell um, that, that sample to him. However, it, how much ever it costs, I price it and you buy it like a market. Or the third could be, you know what? I think this song is going to live on. And I think the value of 10% of all royalties is the most valuable to me. But I get to have that choice between, for example, those three. Am I thinking of it in the wrong way? Is that a no, viable solution? <laughs> could that could that world exist? Can you build it? Yes, we, that we cool. built it. <laughs> we, it that world already exists. Even even um, you know one of one of our companies, Rumblefish. Rumblefish. It's not just on or off. And at HFA, it's not just on or off. We can apply a very robust set of business rules that say it's on if it's on Hollywood Records and it's off if it's on Epic Records because that artist wants to do direct deals with Epic but is perfectly happy to be covered by a band that's on Hollywood Records and they're comfortable for this lyric reproduction but they're not comfortable with that guitar tab reproduction. The world we're trying to build, all of us, is a world that I don't like to use phrases like open platforms. That means all kinds of things to all kinds of people but in essence, we don't want to build... The best example I can think of is trains run on rails. A rail can go from New York to California. It's very straight. The music industry forever was on a rail that went straight from New York to California. And artists, like the folks in this room and on this panel, have said, we need that train to take a hard left turn in Arizona. And the music industry said, okay, over the next 16 years, we will raise the money and hire people and drive stakes, <laughs> and we will make the train turn left in Arizona. And you will say, at that point, I went right, I went to Provo, Utah, and I took a left, and I ended up in right, Portland. Right. So the music industry has the strongest, the strongest set of infrastructure that runs in very long, straight lines. But the creative community is now saying, tomorrow night on my Mac, I figured out how to do something no one's figured out before. And they have to come to the rights administration community like us and say, we want to be able to create a hard right turn tomorrow and we need to build systems that are flexible, who can recognize the three pathways you described or the 33 pathways that Rumblefish and HFA have developed. That world That's exists, awesome. but to actually implement it, deploy it, and then get the creative community to embrace it is, is part of the challenge. Oh, can you talk about that? What are some of the 
pushbacks you're seeing from the creative community? It's not pushback, it's awareness. It's, it's where Ty began, which is, I spend 18 years in my basement from age five to age 23 learning how to play drums. Oh. <laughs> and then I spend four years in a band. I'm now 27, writing songs. And I then raise money and go into a recording studio for 18 months and I reduce nearly three decades worth of my life's work <laughs> to a recording. And then in 13 seconds, I slap a bunch of inaccurate data in, a, in, a, in an interface and forever my, my master recording has populated the world inaccurately described. And without data control or data validation, ISRC is not a validated nope. data element. No, it's, it's, it's typed in. And, and when I type in, I own a label, when I type in ISRCs, I proofread it by looking at 10 in a row. And if I notice that it dented in, I must have missed a number. <laughs> that, that is not validation. And if I actually didn't see the dent and I commit that ISRC, an international standard recording code, code you. which uniquely identifies the master recording, if I commit that erroneous ISRC Done. to a database, it's tribbles for those over the age of yeah, 15. I mean, and it populates the entire world inaccurately and forever. And now, mm -hmm. instead of running the business, we're going to build a mapper that says, yeah. whenever you see this inaccurate ISRC, yeah. map it. It really means this. Millions of dollars of, mass, uh, of resources are being deployed to manage unvalidated data. That's, so it's not artist pushback. It's, uh, you've been playing drums since you're two years old. You have dedicated many hours and lots of blood and calluses and every penny you could get selling your stamp collection. And then when you go online in the InGrooves interface, you blow it because you just don't care that much. And in fact, the asset that you've created is now permanently misidentified. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, another... It will not phone home if you don't identify it properly. No, yeah, I mean, so the, the music services require there to be a number, but they don't have a way to check the right number. I don't know. Their way to say that. And a lot of times, just they duplicate the same number, or even we were discussing earlier, they just reissue the number again by mistake. There's all kinds of things like this. And so kind of the other thing that happens, which people don't realize, is that because every music service has its own database, usually there's some kind of matching thing. So like the Gracenote database has to match with the Spotify database, and then we can make these things connect. And no matter how any good anyone is at matching, like if you can get more than 85%, you're like a, you're like a magician, okay? So that means 15% is screwed up practically no matter what, just in that one little process. And if we go overseas, where we were talking a little bit about China or Japan or these other places, the, it may be your recording, but now what they've done is they've translated your song name into katakana and appended it to your text. So now you've got a katakana appendage on, on your song name, and when the computer system sees that, especially if it's I call it old rights payment systems, not yours, but ones in Japan, it'll go, yeah, that's not Pearl Jam. You know, that's, that's not yeah, it. And then when that company becomes a global company, and moves its servers to San Francisco and wants domestic licensing, all of a sudden, a song that we all know, Like a Virgin, comes in spelled L hashtag question mark, K-E space V question mark, exclamation point, and then someone says, well, we know it's Madonna. I can't believe you didn't match that. And it's like, if I listen to it, I could match it. But me listening to records is not a scalable matching <laughs> engine. <laughs> So I think that the message for all the artists in the audience is, you know, take responsibility for this as it relates to your own career and your own content. The metadata elements that are associated with your catalog of, of creative work is as important as the creative work itself when it comes to getting paid and making sure that your work is getting appreciated and used the right way. Yeah, this is one of the questions from the audience is about best practices. So you're touching on one of the most obvious ones, which is like enter your data correctly. What else could you each three recommend? And feel free to plug the companies and the products you're working on because these are tools that we can use that we want to know about. Um, well, I'll get a couple things I might say there. One is um, for our fingerprinting system to work, we need to get your song somehow into our service. So you have to submit it through, you can submit it directly to a platform. They may send it to us if we have a deal with them, but if you submit it to a large aggregator, we, we could get it from them that way. But you want to get your audio fingerprint somehow into the Grayson database with the right information. Um, that would be really good. And then so we'll use folks it. Folks like TuneCore work with them, Ingrooves works with them. There's those kind of aggregators yeah. all work with Grayson. Yeah, exactly. And then one other thing I might mention is cover songs is a really other, really big, interesting area, which is people performing your work on acoustic guitar. And that's. That's, they might take your song because it was funny or they might like it or whatever and then they post it on YouTube and they get a ton of views. But the problem is there's no recording of that song in my database or anybody else's database. So the underlying song, we don't know what that is. And so the reality is when that happens, even YouTube probably may not figure it out. If it was tagged, they might. 
but a lot of times people have to go search for these things on the internet and find them themselves. In fact, there are companies that do this for large record companies just looking for cover songs. It needs a rad key. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's a really big issue. You and want to talk about that, Michael? Uh, sure. So Rumblefish has developed a technology called RADKEY, R-A-D-K-E-Y, and it is, among other things, an identifier that attaches to the license and allows the distribution network to understand that the necessary rights to enable the distribution have been obtained. Was that English? That's great. Oh, yeah. and so, <laughs> super punchy. So, and so any artist, I didn't understand a word. I just, did that, make sense? <laughs> that made sense. And so our artists should go to rumblefish.com? They, artists can get nice in touch with Rumblefish. We can work with you to make sure that um, as you're obtaining rights that we can attach rad keys to it. That's, that's one of many expressions of the same, of, of the same concept, Topic. which is, again, if you start with, you spent 30 years playing piano, why spend a minute and a half staking your claim to the results of your effort? Right. Make sure that you stake your claim, that you register with Ty, that if you're working in, in the uh, EDM or mashup or Mondo mix, not just a pure old-fashioned remix <laughs> world, mix. You're, working with, you're working with Dubset, you become aware of people like Sound Exchange, if you control master recordings, if you own the rights and the compositions, that you get in touch with uh, HFA and make sure we get the compositions in the database. That, it may be that, that I'm a weenie, but in fact, it's, which is a separate matter, and we take that one offline, but it, <laughs> I'm not looking for any feedback on that. <laughs> no, it's on mute, this, mute on this moment. panel. There are many people here who have an opinion on that, and I'll see you afterwards. <laughs> but the, the point is, it, it, I find it very satisfying to actually create recognition for the fruits of that kind of creative labor. It's an odd thing to me. And let, there, there are some artists who really, they don't want to commercialize their work and they don't even want to be recognized for it. They're doing it for other reasons. That's totally cool if that's your choice. But if you actually are someone who appears in, in media, mm -hmm. blogging, because people think that if they have fingers connected to the internet that their opinion is always accurate, uh, that if you are talking about how I'm not being paid and I'm not being paid fairly, if we put aside whether or not the rates produce the right payments, if you are not participating in identifying what you create, but you are spending a lot of time saying you're not being paid fairly, well then shame on you. Yeah. Okay, okay, so I have a question, I have a question, I have a question. Well, you're the moderator. <laughs> I know, I forget moderate. that I'm a moderator. I'm just trying to hang out and learn something over here. Moderate so that. my question is, I'm not trying to be radical over here, but is our goal to now get people to pay for recorded music using technology, or is our goal to use this technology to unlock other sources of revenue? What's the goal? Well, it's both. I mean, yeah. it, it, artists should have the choice whether or not they want their music released for free because they want the exposure uh, around it. If they want to release it on ad-supported places where the consumer isn't necessarily paying, but the artists are getting paid through ancillary Pennies. revenue by, uh -huh. by uh -huh. advertising, $6. or if they only want their stuff included in paid services. Uh -huh. And what we're trying to create are systems that enable that control to happen. Right. And for the artist ultimately to have, or the label or the publisher that controls that, that work, to have that control to say, this is how we want our content. Yeah, I think also the other thing we didn't mention is also better transparency. So you don't have to wait like a year to find out if what you actually got paid. You can log in somewhere and look at it immediately and see what's going on. And as well, uh, I think an understanding, even you know, other platforms are coming that allow essentially people to understand who their consumers really are. Because you're a little bit disenfranchised from the people who actually, because you don't make the platform they play it back in. Be great if you could know a little bit about where your audience is, or you had some analytics, you could see where they are, or see what they do. And so that's also coming as all part of this, which is how to let people see who's enjoying their music, how they're enjoying it, and yes, how, they, how you're getting paid if that's what you want to do. Okay, but that makes sense to me if there's so much money in recorded music finding all of these, but there's so little that Spotify pays a couple of cents, YouTube pays a couple of cents. Is the goal that now I have volume that I can find people in Japan who are paying my music? Maybe before in the 80s I couldn't do that, so that sort of offsets it. I, I don't see it. So I'm going to send Soapbox a little bit around. I mean, right Today we have mass consumption of content that is unmonetized. Yes. There's a massive amount of consumption happening on unlicensed sites that are not paying the rights holders anything. 
and it's been kind of a model in the industry to just go out, build this site, go out, use this content, build a huge user base, and then go ask for forgiveness later and get your licenses once you've got a billion dollar valuation and some big VCs giving you a nice big check. That has been the model to date. Yeah. What we're trying to do is we're trying to get folks to start the right way and to build innovative products and services that allow for the monetization of content from the get-go yeah. and for, again, the rights holders to have the control and the say on how their rights are used mm -hmm. in the marketplace. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, yes, you're right that the current monetized avenues for an artist mm -hmm are generating small pennies each time your content is used. I mean, I'll take them, I'm just but, saying. Well, and, and we are, to some degree, we are migrating to a world where we are collecting pennies. Yes. And yes, that is about volume. On a global scale, cool. collecting the most pennies possible from the most places where your content is being used. And ultimately, hopefully, that is enough for artists to live and continue to create great content. I think the question's still out. Is the, are the amounts the right amounts? Yes. Don't know. And by the way, n none of us up here Set the ha have a horse in that race, right? <laughs> we are penny collectors right. or, or facilitators of penny, penny collections, collectors, yeah. Yeah. right? And, and we are here to make sure that the, the artists and the rights holders and the distributors of the content are able to collect pennies the right way and make sure that they get to the right people. Yes. And we're not sitting here on piles of money that we don't know who to give it to, which is another yes. big problem. Get off soapbox. <laughs> no, it was, that was really helpful. No, that's, that's, I think that's correct. The, one thing I might say is that the, that there also is you know these new kind of music music things that are music and video things, and so the reality is that's really what's on YouTube, and so and these things are hugely popular. You could have a song that somebody's put into a comedy piece. You could have a lot of different things that are happening on those platforms, and a lot of that usage, which some, some of it's quite large, goes unpaid. And mm. even though YouTube has a payment platform, they're trying to get it more accurate day by day. If they don't know who it is, they don't know what the song is, it's a new recording by an unknown person, mm. but it's really popular, mm. uh, it's still going to take a long time to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and that sharing economy where people then see the video that features your song and then other people re-record their version of it and then that gets passed on, those kind of phenomena yeah. can be really, could be amazingly lucrative for, yeah, the, yeah, for yeah. the songwriters. But without the right information, it, it may not get too far in terms yeah, of Yeah, we got one, one question from the audience actually about this situation, which is that sometimes the payment is actually so small, but we do want to get it to the artist. So is Bitcoin a viable solution? Is cryptocurrency a viable solution? Do, have you thought about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, our system, our registry is blockchain-based, so we are using blockchain. That's that really does cool. allow for... In, in the world of mixed and remixed content for distribution of royalties, utilizing blockchain or other cryptocurrencies. It's a very, it also provides a, a level of transparency and independent transpar based transparency that we think is hugely important around the use of content. Um, but yes, that's a problem. You know, getting paid out your half a cent, we, we don't have any way I know, to and I do want that it. today. I really you want, want your half I a want penny. It. I, I know you do. <laughs> well, but that, 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 there's that, a challenge. That begs the bigger question, which isn't the subject of this, which is assume that every, every creator was paid everything that the law and their contracts said they should be paid. You may still have a different panel at a different time that <laughs> debates whether or not those payments are fair and whether or not the regulatory environment that we currently operate under is actually appropriate. So tell them the thing, the thing the about thing? the thing about the weapons. <laughs> That's the best thing. Drop some tell mad them, thing yeah, science. Tell on them that me. stuff. That stuff is so funny. Please tell them. Well, it was a moment. It was, it was a moment. So but good. It was so good. Recreate it. For well, them. all right. So all, all I we, we were discussing this panel, what we might what we might talk about, and in the in the green room, which is a cool place to hang out, and it's not and I said it's not that. that that it's not green, and there was tequila in there, which may affect the quality of this panel, but I, they, I, I said that it is odd to me that songwriters are probably more regulated than weapons manufacturers oh in this country. Oh my God. Although I do believe that songwriters can be very dangerous. Sam Cooke's Change is Gonna Come is a song that probably actually irreversibly changed our culture. So in fact, you can be very dangerous. Chuck D can be a very dangerous speaker. But you look at the Copyright Act and you see in Section 115 and the regulations under it that, in fact, 
the United States government decides how much money a songwriter can be paid for the mechanical reproduction of their compositions. And so that's, that's a, mechanicals are a significant component of a songwriter or a publisher's income, and it is regulated by Congress. So people we elect to Congress, in addition to dealing with the economy and international affair, affairs and threats to our continued life on this earth, also spend a fair amount of time deciding how much money songwriters can get paid yeah. for a stream online. So are you advocating? It strikes me as a are you little advocating bit odd. Song, song payments should be tied to social impact? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Every song should be judged on its individual merits and its cultural contribution. Ooh, and there should be, and, and Dubset is going to build a sliding scale that actually provides sliding <laughs> scale royalties amazing. based on wow. the quality of the creative output. Would you like your song to overthrow this government or not? Amazing, amazing, amazing. Whoa, easy now. <laughs> okay, That's we have, free uh, we have some you. time. <laughs> open it, open it. Yes, please. You're living on an island because, uh -huh. you know, any five-year-old with a VPN can VPN anywhere in the world and get whatever you want. And, you know, they have a BitTorrent and that's what kids are doing, you know. And so it doesn't matter what, 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 what digital rights. The only solution is to make it easier to buy than to steal. Like until they make it easier to buy than to steal, people are going to steal it. You know, I'm going to have to disagree with that. Yep. And... We seem to give people in the creative commerce an out that we don't give anyone else. We don't say, you know, brain surgery is really complicated and we don't understand it. And until we can make brain surgery easy, we're going to not try to fix brains when they become challenged. But in fact, those who have expertise in an industry actually don't find it difficult. We understand that there are great challenges, but I've known Ty for 15 years, and Ty does, does brilliant work, and it's very difficult, but Ty doesn't sit around all day saying, I don't understand what I'm doing, not all the time. <laughs> and it's very difficult. It's the, I, I find it to be a bit of, a, a, bit of a, a convenient pass to say, if stealing is easier than not stealing, people are just going to keep stealing. It's actually not that hard to pull into a gas station and steal the gas. In New York City, it's a little bit difficult. You have to give your credit card first, but in plenty of places, you can pull into the gas station, put, put it into your car, and then peel out of there. There are not a lot of people doing that. And when they do, you often see them on the news, and it looks pretty funny. With okay, the gas well, like, can I just say one thing? You had said that it's, you wanted to make it easier to buy, but isn't that what this discussion has been about to a certain extent, which is that we need to facilitate the process of payments to build the tech infrastructure? Yeah. They are saying what you're saying. I, yeah, I, what I would claim is actually it's easier to make than it is to for, steal. For example, iTunes... <laughs> has a lot of restrictions on it. Like, I want to, I want to get rid of the restrictions, you know, so that, so that it doesn't have to, like, and those restrictions are put on by the regulatory industry. They're not, they're, I, Apple doesn't want to have those restrictions. Um, it is true. Which restrictions are you referring yeah, to? I mean, it, it, well, I feel like iTunes is a virus on my computer. Oh, it takes going over. Going for it. I like this guy. Thank you. I mean, you can be more controversial than I can, so this is great. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> it's true. I, won't, I have a PC, I will not install iTunes on it. I mean, kids use YouTube. I mean, YouTube actually will, will look at it, but there are so many artists that say they don't want to, to they have like a blacklist. I, 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 I do a lot of karaoke. All these blacklisted artists. And, you know, as soon as a song is taken down, another one's put, put up. Um, and, you know, people buy hard drives, they buy all these things. I buy music. I'm a big yeah, buyer. I mean, listen, pi piracy is is a problem. It's it's been a problem historically in the music space, especially since we converted from physical to digital. Well, no. but but <coughs> it's I think it's erroneous to say we haven't made legal access to music easier. It's become easier and easier and easier for the average consumer to get access to music through legal sites. There's YouTube's a, a great example. 20, 20 years too late. You, YouTube's per, you know, entirely licensed yeah. tight. But you know, our job is to continue to make that easier, and that's what we're doing. So sure, is, our, our, is it easier for a kid to go on Torrent today and take a song than spend 99 cents on iTunes? Maybe. It's actually not I, so I, easy. Yeah. It's actually not as easy as you think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. My 16-year-old just yeah. goes to YouTube. He wouldn't spend the time to fire up Torrent. Yeah. <laughs> There's plenty for him to look at. There's more for him to look at and listen to than he can possibly listen to. Questions? So. Oz. Just 
I just want to say I think it is easier to Spotify than Torrents, and I think it's tremendously depleted the amount of piracy. So I think us collecting all these pennies is the most viable thing we can do right now. And like you said, it's much easier to see something on YouTube than fire up a torrent. I don't. I think a lot of those have gone down. So. And I also know a lot of artists who give away their music for free. I work with a lot of them, and they're making a lot of money on streaming as well, and they're making a lot of money selling tickets. So I think it's all part of a whole ecosystem. And yeah, and building your brand and yeah, really yeah. focusing on what's right for your brand, right. which is really, for every artist in the room, that's up to you. Right. I mean, you should be able to decide what you want your brand to be, whether you want to give your stuff away for free or not. And, and one thing that you know, our moderator talked about is about the Ableton culture today. So that's what kids are doing today. And if, if Steven's company can succeed and get this stuff out there, what you really want is a million kids taking a million bits of a million songs and giving it to the 100 million of their friends. That would be a great economy. And right now they're kind of doing that, but then it's getting knocked down from the sites and it's not really getting as broad a replicative well, distribution. Or it's getting distributed under flat fee models that don't allow for any upside for the artists in the room where the fact that you know, that was, re your song was remixed 100 million times, didn't equate to 100 million more pennies for you. Yeah, let's, let's. That's, that's what we're trying to change, is we're trying to unlock this world where the technology has made it so easy for anybody in this room to create, mm -hmm. right. which wasn't the case before. You had to spend time <laughs> in, in the basement, basement learning how to play the drums, <laughs> which I can't do. And so, but I can take Ableton and cut out a piece of a wave file and put it together with another piece of a wave <laughs> file and recreate a song. Let's, let's, let's the enable the Ableton. That's what we need to do. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things that we've, we've done is we've started to look at how content is actually being used. And so we released today, should be available on, on uh, dubsetmedia.com and also on Hypebot, what we're calling the Mixed Transparency Report. And the Mixed Transparency Report looks across 25 of the top sites where mixed content is being consumed, which would include all the ones you think about, like YouTube and SoundCloud and MixCloud, et cetera. And we found the top 25 mixes across all of those sites. And then we looked within each of those mixes to determine what songs are actually being used and who's being sampled and how are they being sampled. And the, the data that comes back there is very, very interesting. Mm. You know, 52% of those mixes contain David Guetta. Mm. He had a That's great amazing. year. Right? He, he, he's one of the most popular DJs in the world. He's creating mixes that are some of the most popular mixes, and his album went multi-platinum and mm. had multi-platinum singles. So mm. he's being used in multiple different ways. The point being that this is information that you as artists need to know. You need to know how your content's being used and mm. where it's being used. Mm. And today, you get that from us, you know, us a SoundCloud, I mean, a, a YouTube report, you get that from a sound exchange report, you get a Spotify report. That's only telling you a small fraction of how your content's being used across the universe of the internet today. Mm. That's awesome. Actually, I just got in a question for you, Stephen, which was, um, what does the centralization of metadata and mechanical licensing, what does that world look like? Uh, you've been speaking a lot about that in different ways, but if you could answer it in a sentence or two. Yeah, well, I think there's a, there's a couple concepts that have been fairly broadly talked about across the industry. And one of the first is, you know, we've talked about some of the imperfection of, of ISRC, but, you know, ISRC today, there is no public centralized registry for ISRC. So mm -hmm. you as an artist today, if you feel like there's an issue with how your content's being used, there's no one place where you can go and look it up and say, what are the ISRCs associated? Is this stuff right? Mm. And there's a big movement right now across the industry, largely led by the RAA and the IFPI, to create said registry. It's been talked about for a long time. There's a lot of questions about how it would be funded. Some of the current discussions are maybe you use some of that black box revenue that's sitting there that we don't know who it should go to to fund such a central registry and repository and make that thing available open source mm. and available to mm. the public so it's not held by any entity that has some vested interest to control it. Mm. Um, then beyond that, there's a, there's a whole host of other you know, centralized data structures that could be created. Um, you know, to date, most of the companies that you see up here, as in all three of us, mm -hmm. have our own data sets that are all proprietary and held behind our walls, and mm -hmm. we don't share them with anybody else. And that makes it very hard for us as an industry to create interoperability. So a lot of what we're talking about is opening up the walls, and this is what Michael talked about earlier. We don't want to talk about open systems, but we want to create levels of access and interoperability 
that don't are, exist today. That don't exist today. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, basically, you mostly have each plat. Even though I have fingerprinting stuff, I'm more on the audit side. Hmm. Like I can give it to Steven and he can figure things out with it. But most of the content platforms do this themselves behind their walls where they have their own systems, hmm. and they have varying degrees. Yes, if you're Google and YouTube, you have an infinite amount of money. You have a really incredible system. But if you're some guy in, you know, I don't know what the Philippines, you may not have any money. You might not do a very good job at this. And so the reality is, that's another problem, which is. And there's a reason for this, which is to have those systems, you get super valuable statistics. And the problem is those statistics, they're certainly valuable to the artists to know it, but for the services, this is kind of almost some of their trade secrets. They don't want to share the statistics, not because they don't want people to get paid, but because they want people to know what the really popular stuff on their service is, who the consumers really are, because then their competitors could better target them. And so some of that is... Uh, business people just worried about competition. Hmm. And uh, uh, that's a beating against, uh, I'll call it a transparency and letting people see what's actually happening. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's the, the, the negative side. There's a lot of positive with the reduction of complexity and the, cre and the increase of transparency. The negative side, using those terms as a pejorative, hmm. transparency often means I want what you have, and reduction of complexity means I don't want to pay for it. Right. So we don't want to operate in a world where the increase in transparency and the decrease in complexity means give me your stuff and don't pay, and I'm not going to pay you. Uh, but a world in which our data talks to each other, where someone comes in with a business problem and whether it's through an API and some kind of integration, we can help with the data that we have solve their business problems and drive businesses. That's that's what's happening. So with the the, the comment that came in. Before, there's two different things, which is it's not just is it easier to steal. We are working on enabling businesses, but we don't, Stephen might more, I may not know this enough, but, but in general, I don't face off with consumers. I face off with the distribution community, and I try to make their business operate in the easiest possible way so that they can focus their energy on branding, marketing, and captivating the imagination of music consumers. If we can make their life easy, they can then focus their energy on that. That's 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 the easy part. And We're I'd also to just happen. say, you know, I am a big proponent of blockchain. I think blockchain has a huge role to play here. There's been a lot of discussion about blockchain and its use in the right space that is fairly utopian. Mm. Um, I think that's those are all great thoughts, but there are some very real things we can do with blockchain today that will drive some of this transparency that we're talking about. Mm. Right. That's awesome. Okay, question. Go for it. Um, I just wanted to know if there was a reason why we're not asking the Copyright Office to create the central registry. It seems oh to me God. that... Let her finish her question. <laughs> One second. Go ahead, go ahead. Well, like, besides them being a disaster, but, I mean, part of, part of like, that asking is, like, asking that office to not be a disaster and to actually step up and be a part of our times. And if the USPTO can manage a trademark registry where... Everyone might not know how, but you can go online and you can type in a couple of words and pull up anything and find mm -hmm. out if it's trademarked. Sure. Why is that not something that we're at least pushing towards? Is it just that we've mm -hmm. given up on that office? No, well, this is a lawyer to a lawyer here well, in the a few, room. A, a few comments. The, the, um, it may take, assume the Copyright Office is interested in that. There's an enormous amount of resources that are required and really just tactically, which isn't, without even commenting on their desire or their ability. The Copyright Office is, is uh, my public, my soapbox. The, the, the Copyright Office is woefully underfunded and they battle with, there, there has been a fight about in what department of the government are they? are they? Are they part of Congress because they're the Library of Congress and is Congress actually funding them to, mod there's a copyright modernization program that's been going on off and on since at least 2001 that modernization isn't just on the law, but on the systems that they use, the, the ability to recognize compulsory licenses in the millions as opposed to 20 a year, the ability to build a registry that recognizes when you file papers. With the, people file papers with the Copyright Office that stake their claim. It's not easy to look them up. If, we have, if I am involved in litigation uh, and I'm dealing with chain of title, like who owned what composition for what period of time, I still send a paralegal to Washington, D.C. to go through card catalogs and flip through and try to analyze it. There isn't currently um, a, an online or an automated searching tool. There's microfiche and canophile. So we can, you don't even have to get into do they want to or are they capable. They probably are want to, and some of the smartest copyright lawyers are, are in that office. The, the, 
best practitioners of copyright law end up in those jobs. Jacqueline Charlesworth is a brilliant copyright lawyer and she would like to solve these problems. But we know because we're in the technology business among other businesses, rights businesses, that those things cost a lot of money and you're gonna go to Congress and say, in addition to all the stuff we talked about 20 minutes ago, we need $27 million to build a copyright registration database. And the answer is going to be uh, free market should should solve that, and it might be that a free market should because it should. It might also be because even if you don't think a free market should, it that's should. just where the, that's <laughs> right. just yeah, where the yeah, resources yeah. are. Yeah. No, I, what I would just say a couple of things. One is it's actually very hard to do this, and you know I have a company here in the Bay Area. You know I, I got seventy open heads. Anyone wants to work for Grace now, just sign up. It's really hard to hire people to even get people to work on music because music's so complicated. Literally, they come in and once we explain how music really works to them, some of them just run away. Okay, literally. <laughs> so the reality is, and we've, I'm, I'm telling you, like after a week, the guy just doesn't come to work. Uh, <laughs> so, so the reality of that is it's hard to get the expertise and then the sheer volume. And I don't really know the numbers of this, but if there's somebody here from YouTube, they could talk about how much content goes up on the old YouTube a day. Well, it's unbelievable the amount of throughput that was really required for that. It requires massive servers, massive technology, and all the sheer, and what we're talking about also is if we enable the Ableton, hmm. we will have, millions and millions and millions of new works coming out. And so it's gonna take super expertise and really many companies and many participants to build a system where this can all be done correctly. It's gonna take a village. It's gonna take a village. They're and, also and feeding everyone in this audience really good business ideas, just so you know, Let's write them down. Yeah. Cool. Cool, please, yeah, get in this business, it's great. So um, are you basically <laughs> saying that the Berne Convention was a huge mistake and we should have kept compulsory registration for copyrights? Is that what it sounds like? It's basically you're saying, oh, in 1976, we stopped requiring people to register copyrights when it was all paper. We didn't build a system for this, and now you were trying to cobble one together out of random databases from a bunch of different people rather than having a statutory one that, that we did have for a while. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I switched like, into the legal panel, but... <laughs> I, it's okay. We, we did a little bit of that. I'm back certainly... Back. Legal I, I did write my note in law school on Article 2 Beasts of the Burn Convention, and therefore I'm completely perfect. unprepared to comment on it. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, but uh, no, even though, we made, even though we made the formality of registration optional, I was in a major label in the 90s and we registered the copyrights on SRs on all of our master recordings. And even if it's optional for the underlying musical work, people should register it. But does it create the registry that, that our, our, our other questioner asked about? No, not really. That allows, you know, for the lawyers in the room, Jeff is sitting right there, that allows people to if they if they register, it gives them certain rights if they're going to pursue the enforcement of their rights. But does it does it play into the data world that we're talking about right now? No. Right. Also, there's just a globalization problem. So I have editorial people all over the world, people in Taiwan, people in Korea. Hmm. And the metadata, it's the same song, but it's hmm. got a Korean title, it's been translated or whatever, transliterated. So the reality is that, that to even make this a global solution, you're gonna to have to have a global multilingual staff that understands, because if you just look at the data, it's in Chinese, man. Unless you can read Chinese, not gonna make a lot of sense to you. Maybe the SSC code we can read. Yeah, and keep, keep in mind, there was an initiative that, that finally collapsed under its own weight about a year ago that was to create the global repertoire database, and the estimated cost for that was between 70 and 90 million dollars, and that database was going to be non-transactional, meaning it was just going to be, it wasn't, Licenses would not issue or be tracked in that database. It was only going to uh, create global registrations for copyrights that could then be either pulled down or pinged against. So that was, we were approaching $100 million for a static database that would be out of date within 24 hours of its creation. <coughs> Hence the failure. So let's the failure of that project. <laughs> right. Well, they didn't get the funding because right. people realized the scope was going, it was very broad initially, and the scope kept getting narrower and narrower until it was going to eventually just be a list of songs, which is like oh, publishing awesome. the dictionary. <laughs> that's awesome. Okay. Uh, one of the it. things I'm hearing is that one of the steps towards making this better is to get artists to put the right information in from the get-go. And so as the, one of the only people of the music community that I'm directly involved in, and a few others that I see here, and we're big here in the Bay Area, that aren't here, and none of our bandmates want to talk about business, and none of our bandmates want to talk about data. Um, and we come back to them at practice, and we're like, oh, I heard all this shit that blew my mind. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is happening on your guys' end to, um, what kind of outreach or attractive, we have all these media people here, 
PSAs or whatever to get bands and get artists to be more proactive, to take the time, the extra five minutes to fill the stuff out. And especially people who are unrepresented, indie and otherwise. Sure. So there are a couple of things. There, there's def an initiative that the RAAA and the IFPI just rolled out to capture credits through things like Pro Tools in a standardized fashion and to make it easier for artists using the tools that you already use to provide metadata in a standardized fashion so that folks like us have an easier time once that's created tracking your content through to its its conclusion. So I'd look into those things and make sure you're up to speed on what's happening with the creation software and the mixing software that you probably already use today in the creation of your content. Tied to the masters. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And then just some standardized terms. There's free text boxes. They're not you know, like pop-down menu. I'm the producer, and this is my name and my ID number. It doesn't work like that. But like when you do your credits, it's really cool to like producer with a dollar sign at the end or pro <laughs> S deuce I R, you know. Unless like, you're actually ASAP Rocky. Right, exactly. So just using like actual words would be good and that would be nice. And then your name, that would be good. And yes, you can have, you can use your professional name or you can use your whatever nickname or some of these have actual publishing companies associated with it. That's actually a challenge. The publishing company copyright name thing is a really big challenge for everybody. Purple Pachyderm Productions, like where are those guys? You know, who is that? You have to Google these people on the web and sometimes you can't even figure out well, this is what you do. I work with a publishing company and its name is P apostrophe T W G S. <laughs> How do you pronounce that? Patoogs. <laughs> I can't believe you would ask that question. I just really sure wanted to hear you say it. That was good. You wanted me to say that. Wait, out. we have a couple of seconds left. I want to make sure we get one more question in the back. Go for it. He's just in the back. Yes. Nice. Raise it strong. All the way back there. In the journalist seated area. I thought I'd give a uh, good concrete. Uh, solution to the last question. <laughs> One of the things that music industry has been very poor at is creating standards, but luckily a new one has just come out. The one you just spoke of, which is how to gather data in the studio immediately at the point of creation. It's basically garbage in, garbage out at this point because for the last, I don't know, 15 years or so, the tradition has gone away of recording engineers and assistants writing down information in the studio. Uh, so there's an organization called DDEX. If you haven't heard of it, look it up, DDEX.net. This is a consortium of uh, all the big players in the music industry to create data exchange standards. Um, it's used by everybody to communicate new releases and uh, report on sales and downloads. The brand new <coughs> standard is called RIN, R-I-N. Look it up at DDEX.net slash RIN. Uh, this is the and that would have the standardized fields and all the things we talked yes. about. Yes. Yeah. Now, this is designed for machines to talk to each other, so this is not for you to see, but <clears throat> this is the means by which Pro Tools and the other workstations and other third-party solutions uh, can, in a standardized way, exchange the information about the moment of creation. Uh, so I definitely great. suggest if you're in a uh, uh, company in that space that's making workstation software or otherwise, uh, learn about it, uh, use it, and use it to export data from your session so that then that can get handed on to the record label, so then that can get handed on to the distributor, to the services, et cetera, so that we all have it from the get-go. And as another point, I would say to increase the use of identifiers, I suggest everybody go out and get yourself an ISNI. This is the International Standard Name Identifier. Nice. It's kind of hard to get right now, but go and get it. It's worth it. You will be identified and then you'll be paid. That solves, you so the, that solves the duplicate. The artist. Nice. duplicate artist Gentlemen, before we wrap, one uplifting thing that you want the audience to walk away from, from this panel, please, each. We need um, it. Mine would be, you know, we're, we're kind of at the beginning here of, I would say, the second generation of the digital music era. And there's a tremendous amount of effort and momentum around building new systems new plumbing, new train tracks, to use Michael's analogy. We, we are doing a lot of work to make these systems work better for artists, to make, make distribution, legal and, and monetized distribution of digital content easier. And if you're an artist, you know, don't give up on us. We're gonna help you collect those pennies and we're gonna make it easier for you to get your content into the hands of your fans all across the world. I guess I'd say I've been doing this for like 18 years in the data business, and I just figured out what I'm doing. 
So the good news is I know what I'm doing now. <laughs> so I'll try to make it better. I really have, have really? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, the, tools of, the, the tools for creation and distribution have been democratized, and we in the industry have been a little bit behind in, in putting together our democratic tools to make the world an easier world to work in. And I assure you, any person who either does or did work in the companies where I work knows, like there's someone sitting back there with glasses on giving me the, the gas face right now, uh, and knows that we come in, it's, we're, we're not hipsters in the music industry with lava lamps. We're coming in at eight in the morning, we're staying until 10 at night, mm. we're working seven days a week, we're mm. not always succeeding, mm. but we are trying to put in place the systems that will allow, ultimately, people to distribute music because frankly we're all selfish and we just want to hear great records hmm. and we don't want that world we don't want that world to come crumbling down because I'm always looking for the next I'm always looking for the next song breaker by Deer Hunter I always want to hear something new and if those people can't get paid then they're not going to make that record hmm. and then I'm just not going to get to listen to good records hmm. ladies and gentlemen thank you so much meet us for a drink downstairs cheers in the future of the music industry thank you